Well, hello there, and welcome to another edition of Servant's Heart Chapel. I hope uh, this particular episode is a special blessing to you. So let's get right to it. John 3. One of the most significant chapters in the Bible. Holding one of the most significant verses in the Bible. There was so much written on this. So many thoughts. I like to get uh, thoughts of other theologians. Men who have served God for much longer than I. And, and, and men much smarter than I. Uh, there was so much to read. There, I just barely, barely scratched the surface. And I could probably uh, preach an entire series on just on the truths presented here. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm trying to try to boil it down to the most essential truths in this chapter that are uh, of great importance to you as a Christ follower. In the early 1700s, a 21-year-old Oxford student realized that his debauched, wicked life needed to be reformed. He resolved to change. He denied himself every luxury. He wore ragged clothes. He ate no foods except those that were repugnant to him. He fasted twice a week. He gave his money to the poor and he spent whole nights in prayer lying prostrate on the cold stones or the wet grass. But he felt like he was putting a coat of paint on rotten wood. His outward deeds only hid his inward corruption. Have you ever felt like that? I know I have. In John 3, we read about a man named Nicodemus who, like this student, was looking for answers. And I'm just going to read the passage 1 through 22, and then we'll go back and go through it again. But I'm going to, actually going to begin not with 20, not verse 1, because uh, I really the story begins a couple of verses into chapter 22, beginning with verse 23. So we're going to start there, chapter 2, verse 23. While he, being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And that's important knowing this reality that Jesus knew the hearts of men uh, as each engaged with him. As we get into verse 1 here of chapter 3. There was a man named uh, from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He was a religious ruler. He had all the pedigree. He had all the training. He was a religious leader. And uh, verse 2, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed what I told you, that I told you you must be born again. 
the wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and not and don't know these things? Jesus replied. I assure you, we speak what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I've told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This then is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Let us pray. Precious Lord, we're grateful to you for your word. We pray for your blessing upon us now as we endeavor to dive into it. Help us, God. Uh, Help me to have the words to say, and may the words be an encouragement and a blessing and a challenge to those who would hear it. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Author uh, and theologian J.C. Ryle, uh, whom I've I've read several books from, uh, once said that the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus, which begins with these verses, is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Nowhere else do we find stronger statements uh, about those two mighty subjects, the new birth and salvation by faith in the Son of God. The servant of Christ will do well to make himself thoroughly acquainted with this chapter. A man may be ignorant of many things in religion and yet be saved. Did you know that? But to be ignorant of the matters handled in this chapter is to be in the broad way which leads to destruction. I agree with that. You can, you can, there can be a lot in the Bible that you're ignorant of and you're, and you're a child of God, but you cannot be ignorant of the truths portrayed in this chapter and be saved. Understand this truth of this chapter is essential for becoming a Christian. You cannot become a Christian unless you understand and believe all that te- Jesus teaches here. You ever ask yourself, or, or maybe someone has asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do you know the answer? What would you tell somebody if you've been asked that? <clears throat> there was a, a man by the name of Henry Scogel, the one I mentioned who wrote, wrote that book. Wrote the book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. He believed that genuine Christianity is is nothing less than the life of God in the soul of man. That is what genuine Christianity is, the life of God, God's life in our hearts, in our souls. Skogel He wrote this book in 1677, and he was 27 years old when he wrote this book, this little book, 70-page book. And 
and he and he actually ended up dying when he was 28. He died of tuberculosis. But what's interesting about this is that book went on and became a significant influence in the lives of a number of Christian leaders over the next 300 years. Others have different ideas of what it means to be a Christian. Some think they are Christians because of their orthodox beliefs. Others put confidence in their performance. If I do all the right things, if I check all the right boxes, then I'm a Christian. So others think that they are Christians if they have the right affections. If, I, if I'm nice to people, if I am kind to animals, and, and then I'm a Christian. But all these actually are aspects of religion. And being religious is never enough. So here Nicodemus, a religious man, a man who lives by the law of God, goes through all the ceremony, all the sacrifices, everything, uh, comes to Jesus because despite all his religious activity, there is still an aching void in his heart. And could it be, he wondered, could Jesus do something about that void in his heart? In verse 2 of chapter 3, we, we read, uh, yeah, Nicodemus came to a night, said, Rabbi, we know that you come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him. First off, we notice that Nicodemus called Jesus rabbi or teacher. Here, this man who was a very well-educated man, I assume a good bit older than Jesus. Remember, Jesus was just in his early 30s at this point. And, and, and came to Jesus and called him teacher. That was a humbling act. I don't want to discount that. Like some of the PhD going to, um, like some a PhD in English going to Cody and asking for his input on whatever English people study. I don't know the science of English. Um, how to how to diagram a word? Okay. Um, it, it was very. He had it, clearly he was humbling himself. And that's important. You cannot come to Christ unless you're teachable. If you think you have all the answers, you've got everything figured out, you're never going to come to Christ. You have to come to Christ with a humble, teachable spirit. This is absolutely important. Nicodemus was searching, and he believed that Jesus had some answers. And, and uh, he came to Jesus to be taught. And he had to have and, and light. He had to have certain characteristics, and all of us who come to Christ have to have certain characteristics. One of those I've already mentioned, the humility, admitting to a personal need. And then perseverance. He had to find a way, no matter what, to make it happen. Um, nothing's going to stand in your way before you come to Christ. And and, and then Because uh, the devil's going to block your ways and do everything he can to, to make excuses and I'll save it for another day, and we'll do it another time, and it's not important. I don't need to deal with this sin in my life. I can let it sit there for now. It doesn't matter. But when, you, when you're finally fed up with the foolishness in your life, and you're just tired, like, I'm done. I'm, I don't care what is in my way. I'm going to push it out of my way and make it happen. That perseverance is important. Um, and then there's a very important, this insight, this this. this supernatural insight where you recognize that the gospel relates to you. There's some, where there's something inside you turns on, you go, oh my word, I have a need. I'm, I'm lost. I've sinned against a holy God and, and I, I have no excuse and I have no resolution. I have no answers. I have no, no amount of money that I can pay or works that I can do to make this right. That person must have a willingness to submit to the lordship of Christ. It's one thing to assert, yes, I, you're right. 
I, I need to change my life and have a lot of people like that. A lot of people who, who admitted they need to change their life, they need to, to make a change and, 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 and live their life differently from how they've been living it, and they need to follow Christ. But not, and many people were not willing to make Jesus Lord of their life. They couldn't do it. They were happy to put Jesus in a little box, and a lot of so-called Christians are like that. They kind of mold Jesus in, into how they think he should be. You know, it's good. I'll be a Christian. I'm going to do your favor, God. I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to do it my way. You can't do that. You must, and they must be uh, um, having obedience that that it, uh, that works out not just in their mind and in their words, but also their actions. Their life lives in obedience. You can see these characteristics you have to have in order to really come to Christ. You see, religion in and of itself or a moral code is not sufficient. There's an old story about two courtiers of a certain king who were constantly arguing about whether a person could be born a gentleman or I, or a person was born a gentleman already or they could become a gentleman by, by training. One thought it was training. One thought it was only by birth could a man be a gentleman. And... Uh, so the king got tired of their arguing. He kicked them out of the court for a year. So go find evidence, and in a year you can come back and prove your your case. So they went out for a year looking for evidence for their side, and and one of them, one of the men who the man who said, "Well, you can be trained to be a gentleman," uh, found this little sideshow where this cat. Uh, had been dressed up in costume and had been trained to walk on its hind legs, and it and it carried a tray and 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 it delivered chocolates to people. And this guy thought, "Wow, this is it. This is proof that you can train anybody to be a gentleman." And so, for a great sum of money, he bought this cat and he brought him with him to the to the king. And the other guy heard about this, and he's he's starting to get nervous because he hasn't found anything. And he's he's on his way to the court. He's like, well, I guess this is it. I, I'm I'm not able to make my case. Um, the other guy's going to win this debate. And he sees something in a store, and an idea happens, and he goes and buys something in a store, a box in a store, and, and he goes to the king's court. And the first guy comes up, and and he presents this cat, and this cat comes up in his costume and walking on his hind legs and delivers chocolates to the king and and everybody thinks this is amazing this is they love it you know everybody's excited and they need to watch it and the king is pleased and and so the king looks at the other guy and says okay what do you have and the other guy takes his box out and and some mice jump out of the box and the cat immediately drops a tray and chases after the mice see you can you can train somebody to follow things, but there's still an innate nature that has to be dealt with. We can have this veneer with religion and culture, education and moral conscience. But there's still inside, there's the, the fallen nature, this bent towards sin. That is, there's a problem here on the inside. Ben Franklin, I'm, I'm always been a fan of Ben Franklin. Uh, I, I want to finish reading his biography. It's a really fascinating biography. He was a fascinating guy, very intelligent. He took very seriously, from the time he was a young man, he took virtue very seriously. In fact, he had uh, 13 virtues, uh, temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, uh, 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 industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. And he had ways to practice all these different virtues. And, and every day he would grade himself on how well we, he did that day on those different virtues. 
and, and, and he thought this is the way to live because he had to live the best life by practicing all those virtues. And, and that was all good. It's good to be virtuous, but none of those virtues, practicing those virtues, address the root problem. This root problem uh, was sin in our hearts and the gulf created by it between us and God. In verse 3, Jesus said, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That Greek word again can also be translated from above. Did you know that? So born again or born from above, born of the Spirit, born from heaven. Um, Those could all be adequate translations of this phrase. So as you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. John Piper once wrote, what happens in the new birth is not getting new religion, but getting new life. Thomas Adams said, repentance is a change of mind and regeneration is a change of the man. There's a change that happens. When you actually believe in Jesus and surrender to him and confess and forsake your sin, something amazing and supernatural occurs in your your heart, in your soul. When translator uh, Dace Ortridge, uh, working in Papua New Guinea, came to the words born again in John's gospel, he asked his native co-translator to think of some way to express it. The man explained this custom. He says, sometimes a person goes wrong and will not listen to anybody. We all get together in the village and place that person in the midst of us. The elders talk to him for a long time. You have gone wrong, they say. All your thoughts and intentions and values are wrong. Now you have to become a baby again and start to relearn everything right. It was the answer Des was looking for. And today, the words of John 3, 3 in their language reads, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he becomes like a baby again and relearns everything from God's word. At the beginning of my sermon, I told you about a student who struggled with his sense of lostness. Well. While he was struggling, a college friend of his, who happened to be Charles Wesley, gave that struggling young man, who happened to be George Whitfield, a copy of Segal's book. That book I told you about, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Whitfield read Segal's book with amazement and delight. It told him that Christianity is the union of the soul with God. It is Christ formed in us. Whitfield said, when I read this array of divine light instantaneously darted in my soul and from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. After having undergone Numerous buffetings day and night. God was pleased at length to remove my heavy load and enable me by a living faith lay hold on his dear son. And oh, what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory was I filled when the weight of sin left me and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my my soul. David's favorite scripture, I'm sorry, Whitfield's favorite scripture, became John 3, 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He went on to preach more than 18,000 sermons, often on that text. Sometimes the outdoor crowds of over 20,000 people with no microphone, mind you. 
He made many trips to America and was used greatly in the first great awakening. In one of his final sermons, he said, I now am 55 years of age, and I tell you that I am more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself, and that without it, you can never be saved by Jesus Christ. I think this, uh, is a, this subject is more important than ever. I think as Christians, many are just going through the motions. They just go up and, and say the words and, yeah, and start becoming, you know, become a member of a church. And they think, well, I'm good. Everything is fine. I have, you know, I'm, I'm right with God. But there was no inward work that ever occurred. No faith in Christ. And, and so that inward try, try, change, that regeneration never took place. Someone once asked Whitfield why he always preached that we must be born again. Of all things, the whole entire Bible, that's what he preached the most of. His answer was simple but profound. He said, because we must be born again. It's an the absolute in the Christian faith. We as Christians, we can have disagreements on sleeve length or, or hairstyles. Or we can have disagreements on... Uh, what translation to read from or what songs are appropriate to sing in church. But one thing we cannot disagree on, and that is the fact that we must be born again to be a child of God. It's interesting that it's called birth. Like uh, the spiritual birth takes place when someone is saved, uh, there, there are some ways in which it's very much like a physical birth. And in one way, a physical birth provides life, and so does a spiritual birth. It provides a life to our soul. A physical birth takes place because of the suffering of another, the mother suffering through labor, and Jesus suffered for us. Now we could be born again. The physical birth gives an infant a brand new start. No baby is born with a past. They have no past, only a future. So it is with a new birth. When you get saved, you get a brand new start. Your past is wiped away. There are times when the devil will remind you of past sins. And I want you to, to, to remind yourself. That God has already taken care of that. If you've confessed and forsaken that, that's done. That's passed under the blood of Christ. How do we know if we're born again? I have five things here that help us see how we're born again. Number one, we know we're born again if we believe Jesus and trust what he said is true. Number two, we have, we have a new love for God that we've never had before. Suddenly there's this, this, that you want to please the Lord. Number three, we have this new love for others that we've never had before. You start caring about what people think. You're not so self-centered. You, you care about other people and, and you want them to do well and, and you want them to go to heaven. And five, uh, number four, we're greed with sin in our life and are motivated to live a life pleasing to God. And it didn't before. Before, it never bothered us to sin. We just did it and, and, and it didn't even really bother us. And, 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 and now if, if, if we're tempted, if we end up falling into sin, we're greatly grieved. Our heart is grieved. Our heart is broken. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be displeasing to God at all. And five, we stop making excuses for our sin and admit that we're sinful, weak, and ignorant. We're mindful of our failings and our infirmities. We have humility. We're not, oh, I've got all the answers. Or we won't make excuses. I never do wrong. I always do right. That we stop making excuses for our sin. I messed up. I did wrong, Lord. 
Those five things are all signs that we're born again. And if you have those in your life, you can rest assured that you are born again and Christ's spirit rests within you. Going back to Benjamin Franklin, you know, he was a great statesman and an inventor. He received a lot of letters from various heads of state and, and leaders and congressmen, uh, famous people from all over the world. And one day he received what was probably the most important letter he had ever received from anyone. This letter was written from a British preacher by the name of George Whitfield. Whitfield wrote, I find you grow more and more famous in the learned world, as you have made a pretty considerable progress in the mysteries of electricity. I would now humbly recommend to your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important, interesting study, and when mastered will richly answer and repay you for all your pains. One at whose bar we are shortly to appear has solemnly declared, without it we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. You will excuse this freedom. I must have something of Christ in all my letters. What a great example for all believers. Having something of Christ in all his letters. Do, do you have all, something of Christ in all of your communications with others? Do you encourage people to follow after Christ? To at least uh, those who don't believe, do you, do you encourage them to search the scriptures and study for themselves? Whitfield did with Franklin. And, and what happened was Franklin ended up becoming an enthusiastic supporter of Whitfield. He, uh, even though Franklin rarely attended church, did not agree with Whitfield's theology, he admired Whitfield and ended up becoming a major supporter of him, printing a number of his sermons in his, his newspapers and journals, Later in his life, uh, Benjamin Franklin, we don't know what, where Benjamin Franklin ended up believing. Many say that he was a deist. He did not put a trust uh, of saving uh, faith in Jesus Christ. But later in his life, he wrote his own epitaph. And I'd like to read it for you. The body of B. Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms, but the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. I really hope that his hope was based on the work of Jesus Christ. The new birth, I mentioned, you know, some signs of the new birth. Um, the new birth, there's some things that it is not. A lot of people will, will uh, be, if you talk to people of other religions uh, or other beliefs or those who don't really subscribe to a particular belief, they may get confused. So the new birth is not reincarnation. That's something we're talking about. You talk to someone who's Hindu, you talk about the new birth. They can get confused about that. It's not reincarnation. The Bible says it's the point of one man wants to die and then the judgment. The new birth is not a continuous process. It's an instantaneous event that happens in someone's heart the moment they put their faith in Jesus Christ. The new birth is not a simple choice. It's it's It requires a commitment and a surrender. It requires humility. All those things I talked about before, that it requires for someone to come to Christ. You need that. 
The new birth is not the consequence of baptism. There's a lot of confusion about that, that water is what saves you. It's not. It's faith in Jesus that saves you. In fact, Jesus answers, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is it talking about there? Well, the very next verse, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Born of water, you, when you're phys- you need a physical birth. In order to get to heaven, you first need a physical birth, you need to exist, and then you need a spiritual birth. You need to be born of the Spirit. You know, Jesus repeatedly talked about how the, being wealthy can impede someone to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus was a wealthy man. Whatever you think of yourself as far as your wealth right now, I want you to know that by world standards, Americans are considered wealthy. And I don't think we should gloss over this truth. We, we, we tend to think if we don't make a certain amount of money, well, we're, we're not wealthy. We have we, we very well could be, and it could be impeding our trust in God, and we need to pay attention to that. We, have, we, we are just so soft and so uh, spoiled. By the ease of life, we have no idea. I remember years ago, there was a a walk done to raise money. One of the churches in town was doing this walk to raise money for the poor in third world countries. And and the whole thing was uh, the average person in third world countries walks about 3.7 miles for water. And so I, w- I wanted to participate. That's not a good good thing to participate in. I want to support people who, who are struggling. And so Missy and I and, and some others in our church uh, participated in this other church's event. And, and we found out that they weren't walking 3.7 miles. I think they're only doing, I think we only did like a one and a half miles, if that. It was very short. And I asked, why, why aren't we doing 3.7? Oh, we can't walk that far. They were so soft from easy living, they couldn't do a 3.7-mile walk to raise money uh, for those who do it every day just to get water. I've noticed that uh, those who would be classified as poor in our country are less likely to accept used goods for charity from, ch- from charity. If it's, if it's not brand new, they don't want it. I'm seeing that more and more on Facebook. People will ask to help to help some family. Oh, but don't we don't want any used stuff. Now I didn't, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy home. You know, most of my clothes were were hand me downs from older cousins. Actually, bigger cousins. I had I had cousins that were really big, so I one that was actually younger than me, and I would get his hand me downs. <laughs> Because he was a big guy. Um, and so knowing that and, and not being afraid to have used stuff, and then, you know, I, I don't get that at all. To me, it's a sign that, that we're just getting blind to the fact that we have so much and it's so easy to, to rely on that stuff. I noticed that in 2015, when the hurricane hit New Orleans, I remember uh, that. They so Herbert Field, among other military bases, was dropping off supplies constantly, doing 24-7 ops, flying stuff over to help people who have been affected by the hurricane. And I remember one time a pallet of water was dropped off, and the people were mad because they wanted pop, they didn't want water. Jesus said it's easier uh, for a rich person or for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy to believe and enter into the kingdom of God. Now, why is that? Why is it so hard for a wealthy person to, uh, to, to be born again? I think it's important for us to ask that question because we're a lot, I, I told all the stories about, you know, people wanting new stuff and, and, and pop because we're a lot wealthier than we want to believe. And because of that, it could affect our getting into heaven. So here's, here's why it's hard for wealthy people, i.e. Americans, to, to uh, enter in heaven. Number one, they value their possessions more than God. They're not willing to give anything up for God. They're not willing to, to give up, um, uh, make changes in their work or rock the boat or say, look, I need, I need Sundays off. They're not willing to do that. They're not willing to um, uh, not work a bunch of extra hours so they can spend more time with God, with more time with their family, more time in church. They want to work all these extra hours so they can buy more stuff and have fancy cars and all this junk that's not going to do us any good a thousand years from now. Number two, they consider their wealth a wall of protection. The Bible says the wealthy consider their wealth a wall of protection. Oh, I don't need help. I don't need God. I feel secure right now. Number three, they become prideful in their success. Look what I've done. I've done all of this. I pulled myself up on my own bootstraps and, and I'm, I'm doing great. And I don't need God's help. I don't need anybody telling me what I should and shouldn't believe or should and shouldn't do. Number four, they become dedicated slaves to the will of the flesh. Somebody who has a lot of money and a lot of stuff, it's easy to uh, just uh, become a slave, a fully dedicated slave to, to whatever your body wants. You want to be intoxicated or you want to ha eat a bunch of stuff um, and you want to uh, fulfill your sexual appetite. It's all there as long as you got the bucks. And the more bucks you have, the, the more you can serve yourself and become even a more dedicated slave to the will of the flesh. <coughs> so those are the four reasons why uh, it's hard for uh, Americans right now and wealthy people all over the world right now in, in the history of, of uh, the Christian church to surrender to Christ. Verse 6. We're talking about verse 6. Sorrow is born of the flesh is, is flesh and serves the flesh. Whoever is born of the spirit is the spirit and serves the spirit. There's this change that takes place. Verse 7. Do not be amazed that I told you. You must be born again. And by the way, what's interesting is our English Bible doesn't actually show this, but don't be amazed that I told you, that's singular, that you, that's actually plural. So every, all of you, you Sanhedrin, you religious leaders, must be born again. Notice that it's must. It's an imperative. It has to happen. You must be born again. You must allow God to make you his child through faith in Jesus Christ. So the new birth achieves. We become his children through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Jesus uh, wonders, like, if I've told you about things that happen on earth that you don't believe, how you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? He doesn't even get to other revelations. If, 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 if Nicodemus had believed,
believed Jesus, what he was saying right here, we might have gotten more in this story. Nicodemus had limited his revelation by not believing what he'd been given. And we see that happen in the Christian walk. Someone gets to a point in their life and God reveals something to them and they don't, they don't follow through with it. They don't obey it. They don't, uh, they don't believe it. They just ignore it. And that's it. There's no more new revelations. There's no more new insights. <clears throat> We're getting long. Almost. Almost got through. I want to try to get through this all today. We get to most significant verse in this chapter. It was uh, 41 years ago, this last December, I memorized this verse. My mother, who at the time was not a Christ follower, had taught me this verse so I could recite it for a Christmas program. I was playing Joseph. And I recited this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful, amazing reality. Missy and I just uh, heard a story uh, told by... Uh, a, a law enforcement officer. Uh, we didn't get the whole story. I don't remember who it was or what country. He was an American, but he was working in another country trying to catch some people who were selling children. So maybe in Thailand or somewhere around there. But in this country, there was this pastor whose, whose son had been kidnapped and they were working to to rescue this boy and whoever else they could and arrest these men who were involved in this child trafficking ring. And this, this man uh, went in and, and, and I didn't cover agent and they were able to, to uh, safely uh, procure the children that were there and they arrested the men. Uh, but the one sad thing was this, this pastor's son was not there in the group. And so this agent went to the pastor. Pastor was waiting uh, to hear what came of it. And, and so he goes and as soon as he walks in, the pastor knew that the outcome wasn't good. And they began to cry. And then the, 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 the agent was talking to the pastor and he mentioned that they were able to save 28 children, but they don't know what happened to his son. And, and, and the pastor stopped crying. And he looked at the man and he said, hang on. We saved 28 children. And the pastor told the agent, if I had to lose my son to save 28, then I will carry this burden. And did you know that our God, the Father, gave his Son, Jesus Christ, to save all of us who did not deserve it. We were all guilty. We deserve hell. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to be contend, condemned. But he gave Jesus so we wouldn't have to go that route, so we could be rescued. This verse is wonderful verse for God, the greatest being, so the greatest degree, loved the greatest affection, the world, the greatest object of love that he gave, the greatest act, his only, the greatest treasure, begotten, the greatest relationship, son, the greatest gift, that whoever 
the greatest company believes the greatest trust in him, the greatest object of faith, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but have the greatest assurance, eternal, the greatest promise, life, the greatest blessing. What a wonderful reality that is for us. What a wonderful message for whoever would hear it and internalize it. Then Jesus wrapped up his saying, verse 18, Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And we see that play out in Revelation. Someday this is going to happen from Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. Not everybody is going to believe. The Bible says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But whoever rejects him, who does not believe, will have eternal death. They're like dead men walking. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, He that believes is not condemned already. If you have heard Christ's salvation and you have not believed in him, that's evidence enough. There is no need to prove your evil works, no need to fetch your diary, no need to turn over the record of your life. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ, it shows a natural lack of holiness a lack of love to the loving God. And by that evidence, you are condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You must be born again. You must be born of the Holy Spirit by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for your sins. And he can forgive you and make you a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. I encourage you today to trust in Jesus. Let him give you a new heart that loves and lives like never before. Amen. Let us pray. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at servantsheartchapel at gmail.com. Also, we have a website, servantsheartchapel.org. We also have a Facebook page, so you're welcome to check us out. Love to hear from you, prayer requests, anything you may need. We are here for you. Have a wonderful and blessed day.